Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Inflation. Anyone shopping for food at the grocery store has felt the impact of inflation. Higher food prices. Campbell Soup, General Mills, and Kraft Heinz are among the food companies that have increased their prices this year. CNN Business reported that Kraft Heinz sent a letter to its customers in January detailing its plans to raise prices this month on dozens of products ranging from Oscar Mayer branded cold cuts, hot dogs, sausages and bacon, to to Velveeta cheese, Maxwell House coffee, drink mixes and more. Some price hikes are as high as 30%. Today where we live, we talk to an economist about the ways the high rate of inflation will impact us and how the Federal Reserve is expected to respond. Now if you're on a fixed income or have been able to save for the future, we find out what you can do to soften the financial pain Americans may feel for a long time. Tim Baker, founder of Metric Financial and Simsbury, will join us. And later we focus on how inflation makes food instability worse and what local communities can do to help residents in need. Also, have you heard of Fridgeport? That conversation later. First, joining us on Zoom is Professor Roger Ibbotson, who's Professor Emeritus at the Yale School of Management. Welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, President Biden brought up inflation in his State of the Union address. Here's some of what he shared. Too many families are struggling to keep up with their bills. Inflation is robbing them of gains they thought otherwise they would be able to feel. I get it. That's why my top priority is getting prices under control. Biden went on to say his plan will focus on lowering costs, not Americans' wages. So, Professor Ibbotson, the current inflation rate, I believe, is 7.5%, the highest, I think, in 40 years. What's driving this? Well, there are uh, quite a few things driving it, but uh, it's been it's been talked about as if it was all originally it was all transitory, all because of COVID. There were there were supply issues. By by supply, I, I mean like the ships couldn't come in to unload, or or the uh, there was a not enough workers to meet the meet the needs of everybody and so forth. And of course, the Ukraine situation is a supply issue too because. Uh, uh, Russia produces over 10% of the world's oil, so so uh, all of that, all of those things are definitely supply issues. But but uh, but the other side of the coin really is what the Fed has to do with, and that's the demand side. Um, what the Fed has been doing, very liberally, I got to say, is building up their balance sheet, and that means that they've been basically creating money. It's it's almost like you're printing money. But of course, today we don't print currency so much. We don't really use currency. But money means a lot of things. It means things like, like your checking account, your credit cards, even your iPhone, um, your money market accounts, all those sorts of things. Um, basically, though, we've been uh, uh, producing a lot of money into the economy, which creates a lot of demand. And and uh, I think that's what's that. And I got to say, frankly, it's the fiscal deficits too. 
all these things are creating the inflation that we have now. So I don't think it's transitory anymore. And I don't think it ever really was transitory as they were talking about it being transitory. And again, when you say transitory, being a supply problem. That's right. The reason why it was the Fed was talking is this were transitory was, oh, those eventually will fix the supply problem and then the inflation will go away. Well, that that probably is true, although with the Ukraine situation, that's not as true. However, with the on, on the demand side, uh, if you're if you're effectively creating all this money supply, um, that that is causing the, the inflation, and the Fed has a lot to do with that, really. So, I'm actually surprised that the Fed was so slow in reacting to this, because it wasn't even all the way up until December. Finally, in December, they started saying, "Well, let's not talk about transitory anymore." But they were talking transitory before that, and. And it's not uh, really that transitory when you're creating such a big money supply. Actually, the Fed balance sheet is about $9 trillion now. And to put that in perspective, before in 2007, before the financial crisis, it was less than $1 trillion. So they're, they're effectively buying all these treasury bonds and mortgages and so forth. And when they buy them, money goes into circulation. And that's uh, what's been happening. So we've got nine times the amount of money that's pushed out here um, from the balance sheet that we did have back in 2007. So what do you expect the Federal Reserve to do to reduce inflation by limiting the amount of money circulating in the economy? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, they're going to actually stop this uh, increase in the balance sheet. They're finally going to put a stop to that. Uh, It's been a long time going, but they're finally going to stop. And they are going to... uh, start raising the rate at the discount window so that banks have to pay. It's been basically near 0% with a free money, um, but they're going to start raising the discount rate, um, I guess, starting the March meeting. So they're reacting. I got to say, it's been a slow reaction here, Mm -hmm. but uh, they are reacting and, and uh, we, but it's not so easy to stop. You know, once, once inflation gets built into the system, it's really hard to start correcting. So I, I expect we're going to have um, inflation for quite a while now, and especially with the war in Ukraine, uh, energy is a big part of the of our pocketbook, and so and that's a world price effectively. So all those things are going to uh, con- likely have continued inflation. Well, when you talk about uh, limiting the money supply, you know how would that impact the economy post-pandemic? Uh, you know, what are the dangers? As you mentioned, it's it's a hard thing to fix right now. Well, that's what's so difficult about it because there's a trade-off here. As easy money is something that most administrations like because it promotes uh, growth. It puts money into people's pockets, and the immediate effect is a positive for the economy. And, and but the longer term effect is potential inflation. So um, certainly President Trump liked easy money and he always pushed Jay Powell's, the, the Fed chairman to have uh, easy money. So um, it, so it, it, the, the problem with uh, tightening the money supply is that it can hurt the economy. And uh, but you have to do that if you're gonna really uh, start impacting inflation. 
So what else can be done to mitigate the, the falling value of, of dollars, especially when we think about all the federal money allocated for COVID relief, Professor? And in election year, candidates often talk about the merits or lack thereof of increasing the minimum wage. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think that, uh, I guess, Biden, President Biden talked about uh, lowering lowering costs, but not wages. And wages, of course, are a big part of costs. Uh, so that's an admirable thing to do to lower costs, of course, but I don't, I don't, it's not so easy to do. Um, as far as, uh, I got to say, I'm not against the minimum wage because this, it, it can be inflationary, of course. Wages are a part of this, but at least you're targeting the people who need it most. And they're the ones that are most affected by, they'll be affected by inflation, but they'll get a, a bigger benefit from their increased minimum wage. So, so I, I think that that can that can be inflationary, but that's certainly not at least that money's going to a target, a directed target that can really help the people most in need. When you think about people in need, also in, in the recovery, the restaurant industry is still still struggling. Also, the retail industry, and so if corporations increase wages, you know, how does that impact inflation or the fact that it may continue for some time? Well, I think uh, these industries are, are, I think they are starting to recover, but they also have a shortage of workers at the same time. And and uh, one way to get workers, more workers, of course, is to pay them more. So I think this could be that could be a generally positive that that uh, say restaurant workers and so forth get higher pay because uh, it's not usually one of the highest paid part of our our economy and and. Uh, uh, I think we, we may benefit from that. But yes, all of these things, there's always a trade-off here. That's the, that's the problem with the economists, you know, when you, <laughs> you bring an economist on the show, they always say, on the one hand, and on the other hand, and on the third hand, and so forth. That's, that's the way we talk. So we have all these trade-offs. No, nothing just, there's no simple solutions. Uh, there's basically decisions to be made with these trade-offs. You're hearing Roger Ibbotson, Professor Emeritus at the Yale School of Management, as we talk about inflation. You know, Matt asked this question uh, on Facebook. Uh, he writes, corporations are raising prices because of inflation, in quotes, but are reporting record profits and paying executive bonuses at all-time highs. He wants to know why is this called inflation and not price gouging? Well, I, that's a pretty different topic in a way, but uh, but yes, I'll, I'll, certainly in these, uh, in a period of shortages, cor- corporations can raise prices, and, and that's what they're now doing here. So, um, I, but I don't want to call it price gouging. I, I believe in markets, really, I have to say, uh, that uh, essentially when there are shortages and you raise your prices, it helps to meet, have, have supply and demand meet each other, really. So, we don't want to over-regulate how corporations act here. Um, I, I do think that uh, there's too much money flowing to the top and we a, a society that's getting too unequal. And we have to do things to address that. But I certainly don't want to do things like price controls. That's one of the worst ways to take care of this because that causes all kinds of distortions in the economy. Mm. Uh, you mentioned interest rates earlier. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people worry about that, but we haven't seen interest rates rise for some time. And so uh, when we look at, um, you know, federally, what's going to be happening in the next few months, you know, when would we start to see these interest rates rising? Well, I'm surprised they haven't risen more so far. Because well, if you say that the shorter term interest rates are less than 1% and 
and even the 10-year rate is less than 2%. So the, these are the treasury rates. And, and meanwhile, we got inflation at 7.5%. So if you're a lender lending at, say, less than 2%, and you, and you uh, have inflation going on at 7.5%, that's a negative real rate. That means you're actually losing money over time because you, let, you get your money back, a devalued currency effectively back, and you and you earn a negative rate of return. So, so uh, I think uh, we generally think of interest rates as including some components here. One of them is the is the expected inflation, and another is the real rate of interest. The expected inflation is get is starting to really rise. The real rate of interest has been very negative recently, but I don't know how long that can continue. One of the reasons. It's so negative, though, is again because the Fed, the Fed has got there buying bonds. That's pushing real rates down, but it's potentially increasing, um, increasing uh, inflation, expected inflation. At the local level, what can be done to mitigate these effects of inflation, Professor? Anything? Well, I'm glad you asked it that way, Lucy, because I, I you, you really can't control inflation at the local level unless you do price controls or something, which is, which I, I certainly would not recommend, but you can react to it, I guess. And I'm, and that's what I think you've done here with the guests on your show. You have different people on the show uh, who are going to talk, I guess, about how they're going to react to this. Um, so yeah, you might, uh, you might have minimum, minimum wages, uh, a, a minimum wage rate, and you might have, uh, it might subsidize certain food or whatever, or, or distribute it in certain ways and all that. I think that's what's going to happen. I, I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't seen the last part of your show yet because it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but I'm sort of guessing that that's where you're going to go, that that this is uh, things where places where you're going to try to react to that. And, th- and that's the appropriate thing because maybe you can react to this inflation, but you really can't stop the inflation. When we think about reacting on a local level, uh, sometimes also hearing from uh, lawmakers about you know ways to to cut uh, certain taxes uh, that Connecticut residents uh, are paying. That would be another way that the, uh, locals could respond to this, Professor. Well, you can cut taxes, but let me say, uh, Connecticut's had deficits. You know, it's had it's had uh, it, it, more recently because of uh, government funding, federal funding. It's 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 it starting to look okay, but that's not permanent. Um, so you you can cut taxes, but uh, really it's probably better ways to cut spending because, uh, but certainly potentially cutting taxes and cutting spending, just cutting taxes by itself just was going to lead to more deficits. Professor Roger Ibbotson, a pleasure to hear from you on the show. He's Professor Emeritus of the Yale School of Management. Thank you for talking with us. Okay, it was great being on the show. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, if you're on a fixed income or able to save for the future, we find out what you can do to soften the financial pain Americans may be feeling for a long time. Tim Baker, who's CEO and founder of Metric Financial in Simsbury, will join us. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're talking about inflation, people earning minimum or less than minimum wage, and individuals on fixed incomes, like some retirees, will feel the brunt of it. Consumers see how inflation impacts prices at the grocery store, but it can also affect housing and rental costs. State Comptroller Natalie Braswell released a statement Tuesday saying, Continued inflation and likely upcoming interest rate increases are some factors leading to pressure on the housing market with fewer homes and rising prices. And that extends to the rental market, where in Connecticut, average rent increased 15.37% year over year from $1,544 per month rent to now more than $1,780 per month. Braswell says over half of Connecticut renters are already cost burdened. Uh, we can join our conversation today as we talk about uh, local ways now to, to help mitigate uh, the impact of inflation on households. Our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, we wanted to hear uh, from uh, financial analysts about uh, the ways that uh, this conversation is happening uh, for people in our state. Tim Baker is with us on Zoom, founder and CEO of Metro. Financial in Simsbury. Tim, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So what are you hearing from your clients? How worried are people about this high rate of inflation at 7.5%? Yeah, so, I mean, we don't get a ton of questions directly on inflation in and of itself. Um, and where we do, we try to redirect the conversation a little bit, which is, um, right, when it comes to inflation, just like anything else, there's two pieces to it. There's direction and there's magnitude. Um, the direction of inflation, generally speaking, is positive. Part of the Fed's mandate is to maintain inflation at a reasonable level. Um, generally speaking, inflation is not a horrible thing. Um, what we're worried about now is the magnitude of it. To Roger's point earlier, um, you know, the Fed was saying for a long time that this spike was going to be transitory. Uh, that remains to be seen. Certainly, we're seeing a huge spike off of um, pretty serious dips in prices during COVID lockdowns, which is to be expected. Um, but the Fed certainly does need to get ahead of it. Um, and so I, I try to redirect it to, are we really concerned about inflation or are we concerned about the magnitude of inflation and what that's going to cause the Fed to do? And at the end of the day, that is really the bigger issue, even prior to Russia invading Ukraine. Stocks were already sliding pretty significantly this year, um, and that was really the ca uh, caused by the fact that uh, you are removing basically a 13-year regime ever since the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, the Federal Reserve has been providing the global economy with basically free money, um, and everybody's trying to figure out what that's going to look like when it goes away. 
Hmm. Warren Buffett has said the best way to counter inflation is to invest in low-cost index funds, and other is investing in metals and commodities. What's your take, Tim? Yeah, so Warren is, uh, you know, one of the uh, all-time seers. Uh, well, right, <laughs> his name is the Oracle of Omaha. Um, you know, in the market, and uh, he takes a very no-nonsense approach. We've modeled our business uh, after that a little bit. Um, we don't use index funds, I think, the way uh, Warren means it. Uh, I think Warren means just by the market, the S&P 500 or whatever it is. We do use low-cost index-based ETFs, but the indexes track something other than the market overall. But I think if you take that aside and just say, well, what's he really getting at? I think what he's really saying is the best way to beat inflation is to own stocks. Um, and we would agree with that in the long run. It's certainly not bonds. Um, I was excited to learn this morning that I'd be following Roger Ibbotson. Um, I've been <laughs> in this business for 26 years. And uh, one of the more famous things that people will have on their wall is the Ibbotson chart. Um, and if you look at the Ibbotson chart, it tells you the returns of different asset classes over time um, and stocks by far uh, beat bonds, cash, anything else. Um, regarding commodities and, and metals, right? So the, the, common, the common wisdom is buy gold to beat inflation. Um, the reality of it is you have to know when inflation is coming and get in front of that trade. Uh, and I say trade because we own stocks and bonds and cash. You know, we own those things to create income streams for clients and to grow their assets to beat inflation for the future. We tend not to time things. So if you look at this year, certainly gold has been a good place to be. So if you look at the iShares, iShares is BlackRock's ETF business. If you look at the iShares Gold Trust ETF, that is up 4.89% year to date through the end of February. That is certainly much better than the negative 8% return for the S&P 500. Mm. So, but if you look at 2021, when inflation actually came about, right, the return for that uh, ETF was negative. It was negative 4% last year, while the S&P 500 was up about 29%. So is gold going up because of inflation? Or is gold going up because Russia invaded Ukraine and everybody's taking this big flight to safety? Uh, to Roger's point earlier, you know, interest rates have actually reversed course. They were they were rising pretty significantly earlier in this year in, in anticipation of what the Fed was doing. Um, and now rates have started to come back down as investors have bought things like bonds, gold, silver, all those kinds of things and gotten rid of risky assets like like stocks. But in the long run, if you look at a 15-year return on that same gold ETF trust, it's 6.94% annualized. The S&P 500 has returned over 10% over that same 15-year period. So it's a long answer to explain to people that things like gold, metals in general, you know, those are things you kind of have to time. If you just want to beat inflation in the long run, we would agree with Warren that you just you have to own stocks. It's it's the best return in the business. Mm. 
You're hearing Tim Baker here on Where We Live, CEO and founder of Metric Financial in Simsbury. Tim saying that uh, when we think about inflation, thinking about the magnitude of inflation, but if you're close to retirement, you know, what are you considering and are you concerned about uh, the next uh, several months? Again, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so in general, Tim, you know, how much cash should an individual's hold versus investing in these low-cost indexes? funds? Um, yeah, that's an important question, Lucy. Um, and, and we get it all the time. Um, and anecdotally, um, I had a client come to me a couple of weekends ago. Um, and his, his, his comment to me was, I want to take everything out and go to cash. Um, you know, after the market was already down, you know, seven or 8% at that point. Um, and so we had a long conversation. Um, you know, do you want to move to cash because you're scared the market's going to keep going down or do you want to move to cash because you need cash? Um, and by the end of the conversation, the client had agreed to commit more money to his portfolio rather than taking money out of it. Um, right. So, so it's an important consideration. Do you need the money or are you doing it because you don't want your portfolio to go down in value? I tell people all the time, the market doesn't tell you what it's going to do before it does it. You never get hit by the bus you see coming, right? This is the price that we pay for a better return in the long run. Like I say, the 15-year return for the S&P 500 is 10%. Um, that's actually a little bit distorted. We've had some pretty seriously outsized returns over the last couple of years, especially given global economic lockdowns. But uh, that aside, um, it is certainly the best return in the game. And in order to get that return, you have to give something up. And what you're giving up is stability. If you want to own bonds, you can get a long-term return of two, three, maybe four percent. Although that's been distorted by you know interest rates that have been falling for thirty years, um, you know, courtesy of the Fed over the last thirteen of it. Um, but you can get a much lower return in things like bonds, and you'll get more stability. You have to take on the volatility in order to get that return of stocks. You have to you have to you know give something to get something. That said. For somebody who's retired or retiring, uh, we always suggest to people if they're if they're considering retirement soon, um, you know, to use an analogy, you know, start putting the landing gear down not when you hit the runway, um, you know, but when you're at um, you know five thousand feet, ten thousand feet, um, you know, whatever it is. So as you're thinking about retirement, a couple of years before that, that's when you should think about starting to allocate the cash. And the way we typically do it for folks to create income streams during retirement is we typically take one year's worth of uh, net expenses. So um, this gets a little bit complicated, but basically what we do is we create an income floor. And that floor is what are your existing sources of income going to be? When you retire, are you going to have Social Security? Are you going to have a pension from your company? Do you own any income properties? What are all the sources of income you know, so let's say you have $40,000 worth of income coming from Social Security, pensions, things like that, but you need $50,000 a year. Okay, so now $10,000 is your gap. So we need to create a $10,000 income stream from your portfolio. So we would typically keep that $10,000 in cash to make sure one year's worth of income is guaranteed. Then the next couple years of income we would have um, in something with a better return but more stability like bonds. Um, and then the longer term uh, assets we would have uh, in a blend of stocks and bonds to continue to beat inflation in the long run. Um, and then we would rebalance that every year. 
so that every year you're always recreating one year worth of income uh, in cash. So that's typically the way we think about it. Other than that, for folks that don't need it, that are not close to retirement or in retirement, uh, we try to minimize cash altogether. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we just, I manage a portfolio for a local chamber of commerce and the commerce, the chamber had a CD come due um, and the renewal rates were 0.1 or 0.15%. Um, there's just no return to be had anywhere. And what about for parents who are saving for their children's education? What should they be doing now? Chats, Chet accounts, um, and be very careful with Chet Advisor. Um, Chet is something, sorry, Connecticut Higher Education Trust is what, what Chet stands for. Or, you know, if somebody happens to not be in Connecticut, um, you know, go to your local state 529 plan. Uh, 529 plans are phenomenal. Um, anything that you contribute to it is pre-tax, it grows tax deferred. And when you take the money out, assuming you do it for educational expenses, um, it's tax free when it comes out. Anybody can make contributions on behalf of a child. Uh, they really are a phenomenal program. Um, so it really, it, it, it all boils down to how old the child is. Um, you know, I've been investing for my kids ever since they were uh, six months old. Um, and <laughs> now I have one who is headed for college in um, about six months, uh, which is frightening at, at best. Um, so <laughs> I have about 50% of his 529 plan, his Chet account, uh, in, in cash and bonds, because obviously that is a very near term expense. I can't be taking risks with that money. Um, so this market drop has no impact on my ability to pay uh, his college expenses because the portion that I need in the near term um, is covered in cash and bonds. The easiest way to do that, um, you know, if you go to check or whatever your whatever your state 529 plan is, um, most of them will have very low cost index funds, as we were talking about earlier. Be very, very careful about that. I always make myself available for anybody that wants help with it. I don't charge for it. Um, this is too important. Um, you know, there are tons of plans that are filled with active mutual funds that have very expensive uh, fees associated with them that you cannot see. They're very difficult to find. They're buried in a prospectus somewhere. Basically, what you want to do is go to the 529 plan and find the low cost index option with age-based plans meaning you know they'll have they'll have portfolios where you just say okay put $50 a month in the 0 to 4 portfolio or the 4 to 4 to 7 portfolio and they will automatically invest risk appropriate for the age of the child the younger the child the more it'll have in stocks to grow for the long term and by the way you absolutely want growth for the long term uh, Roger was talking earlier about inflation. One of the fastest and biggest sources of inflation prior to COVID, prior to Russia, prior to any of this, it's always been tuitions. Uh, tuition is one of the fastest growing costs in this country. There's nowhere that you want to would, would want to invest for growth more uh, than for college costs. But again, uh, be very careful about what's in there. Um, and I, I advise people all the time, be very careful about things like Chet Advisor. Um, because of, they'll they'll attach a financial advisor to your plan and just automatically put more expensive investments in there so that the advisor can get paid from that and you really don't need an advisor to do it. That's a that's a good tip. But before we're out of time, Tim, can you talk briefly about you know, the benefits of a Roth IRA when it comes to flexibility? Yeah, right. Uh, good point. Uh, Roth IRA is also a good source of college planning, retirement planning. There's lots of flexibility with a Roth. The challenge with a Roth is 
it's after tax dollars. So people typically think of an IRA as something or, or even a SEP if you're a business owner, you know, this is potentially pre-tax dollars and that's great. I'll save on my tax bill, all that. Roth IRA, that's not a possibility. Uh, however, um, and sorry, the other limitation on a Roth is you can only put $6,000 a year into it, whereas the, the contribution limits on a Cheddar or a 529 plan are much, much higher. So, but once you get past the fact that it's after-tax money, um, you can put that $6,000 a year in, 7,000 if you're over the age of 50, they do have an extra $1,000 a year catch up if you're over 50. Um, so you put that six or $7,000 a year in, that grows tax deferred, no matter what trades you do in the account, there's no capital gains tax. When you get to retirement after the age of 59 and a half, you can take the money out and it's tax free. The other beauty of a Roth is it's protected from uh, what's called RMDs, uh, required minimum distributions, 401ks, IRAs, those are all going to have, you know, the government's going to force you to take money out of there uh, once you hit 72 because you've been growing at tax deferred and the government hasn't gotten its taste. Uh, but once you once you hit the age of 72, they're going to force you to start taking money out so that they can get their tax. With a Roth IRA, they, they, there are no required minimum distributions. So, um, so yeah, the beauty for a Roth is it's 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 tax free money in retirement. There's no required minimum distributions, uh, and the money can be used for college costs. Um, you know, meeting certain criteria. Uh, prior to age 59 and a half, uh, again, if those withdrawals meet those criteria. Tim Baker, again, is founder and CEO of Metric Financial in Simsbury. Tim, thank you. We really appreci appreciate your perspective today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, inflation impacts food security. After the break, we hear from two local organizations who are working to help residents in need. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease. In honor of Rare Disease Day, Alexion recognizes the patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers working to improve the lives of people affected by rare disease. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier, we talked about the factors leading to the highest rate of inflation in the U.S. in four decades and how there's no quick fix. People on fixed income and workers earning minimum wage stand to lose the most during this time. So how can local communities respond, especially as high food prices affect security, food security, rather? Uh, this is Rhonda Schloman, who lives in New Haven. I love cereal. I'm always buying cereal. And um, at Seatown, especially, every box of cereal has gone up $1, at least $1. Uh, Rhonda told uh, Connecticut Public Reporter Ali Oshinsky that now she's buying less cereal because of those rising prices, and she relies on food stamps, so her budget remains the same even as prices go up. Joining us now on Zoom is Jason Jakabowski, who's president and CEO of Connecticut Food Share. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing okay. So could you respond to what we heard from Rhonda in the context of what you're seeing at Food Share? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it, it's certainly it's certainly accurate. I think all of us, as uh, just as individual consumers, see the uh, the increase in prices at the at the grocery store, 
And um, for many of the people that we serve uh, who are, are food insecure across the state of Connecticut, you know, have a very difficult time um, purchasing food to begin with. Uh, and certainly inflation does not uh, doesn't doesn't help. So, you know, we we've seen it at uh, Connecticut Food Share in, in two different ends of the spectrum. One is that the people we serve are needing more and more because they're able to purchase less and less. The second thing is, is that as purchasers ourselves, uh, we are seeing increases in the uh, in the cost of food that we are going out into the market and, uh, and, and purchasing. So it's kind of a it's kind of a double whammy. Right. Now, FoodShare had a study during the pandemic looking at the number of first timers to the food pantry. So what are you hearing now from the people you serve, Jason? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the good news is that the numbers are not where they were about 18 months ago at the peak of the pandemic. Um, so that that is that is good news. Uh, they were we had about 550,000 people in Connecticut who were food insecure. We are there now about, you know, 428,000 here in Connecticut. So that's that's progress. The bad news, of course, is that we're not back to where we were pre-pandemic. And I think what you're alluding to is the survey we did at Rentschler Field at the emergency food distributions, in which we found that 73% of the people who had used our service at Rentschler Field during COVID uh, had never used one of our services before. To me, that was mind-blowing because what it showed is that as a result of the economic impact of the COVID pandemic, you had people uh, who had never experienced food insecurity before now suddenly being thrust into this world that they that they didn't know a lot about. That had a lot of put a lot of stress on on our. Um, our ability to be able to, to get food out to people. But it was a real eye opener, I think, for society as a whole, uh, because, you know, you, you, you saw there were a lot of, of folks in the middle class who, for the first time ever, were dealing with something they never dealt with before. You mentioned the numbers have dropped in Connecticut of residents who are food insecure, but expect that number to increase in the next several months. And when you look at, you know, how food share is responding? Yeah, I mean, I I always set my disclaimer, and it's, it's funny being on on this uh, on this particular call. My disclaimer is always, I'm not an economist. I'm a, I'm a political <laughs> scientist by trade. So, um, but thankfully, there are there are plenty of economists on this uh, program who uh, who who can shed some light to that. What we do know is that every time there is a significant economic downturn, obviously, food insecurity uh, 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 increases. Um, whether this in, whether inflation is going to stick for a long period of time, whether it's just a blip, I think that's what we need to, to explore. That's what we need to see. But it has had some real impacts in terms of the stuff that we're able to do. Ground beef, for example, we're not purchasing ground beef right now because of the increased price. Um, poultry has gone up. Uh, 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 it's, it's close to 90 cents a, a pound. Uh, canned soup has gone up about 12 cents uh, per pound. Pasta sauce, uh, rice, those are staples for a, uh, for a food bank like ours. And we're seeing increases in all of those, uh, in, in all of those prices. Mm. Uh, mean, meanwhile, there's a bill, I understand, under consideration uh, within the General Assembly to prevent food waste. So are you playing a part at all in, in championing this bill, Jason? Through well, yeah, we certainly we yeah, we absolutely we, t we testified on it uh, last week. I think it's a very well in, in, intentioned bill. I think uh, obviously our major concern is always food safety. And uh, making sure that, uh, you know, we have a great working relationship with the supermarkets here in the state of Connecticut. Uh, they have donated uh, millions of pounds of food to us and, and continue to donate millions of pounds of food every single year. Um, 
our our major um, our major priority is ensuring food safety, and that if they're donating food, it's got to make sure it's going to an organiz to a, a, a uh, to a nonprofit organization that is maintaining the uh, the the cold storage uh, chain of command, uh, etc. Et uh, making sure that there's uh, you know everybody deserves safe quality food. So yeah, it is something that we testified on last week up at the, up at the state Capitol. And uh, we're certainly looking forward to working with the, the bipartisan legislators that had uh, championed it in terms of, you know, making it, making it better and making it even, even more practical for the people here in Connecticut. What do you want our listeners to know people, especially who, who want to help those in their community that are facing food insecurity, Jason? Well, I think the thing that I want people to remember is that, you know, there's often this misnomer that this is Connecticut and that, uh, you know, we're the richest state in the country and we don't have to worry about food insecurity. That's just simply not not true. Uh, there is somebody who is food insecure in all 169 towns here in Connecticut. Um, it's not just the inner cities. Uh, it's places like Greenwich and Avon and, and Simsbury. Uh, there are we absolutely have mobile programs. We absolutely serve residents in those in those communities as well. Um, so it is all over the state of Connecticut. And I do think that there is this there is this misnomer that uh, it, it's just in, in in urban areas. But what I want people to know is that you know we're here for them. This is what we're here for. People often come up to us and say, "Geez, you know, I'm sorry, I have to use your service." Don't apologize. This is why we're here. This is what we do what we do. And we have 700 pantries and mobile sites across the state of Connecticut in order to uh, to, to help get that food out to people uh, uh, across Connecticut. So uh, we're 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 here. We're we've been helping and we're ready to continue to help. That's Jason Jakubowski, president and CEO of Connecticut Food Share. Now, mutual aid organizations also play an important role in local communities uh, to help people. Joining us now on Zoom is Reggie from Fridgeport. Reggie, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome. Uh, good morning. How's it going? I'm doing well. So tell us briefly about Fridgeport. When did you launch? Who are the people you're serving in the city of Bridgeport? Um, Fridgeport is a mutual aid project uh, or initiative. Uh, launched May of last year. We uh, community fridge. We are twenty four hours. We're open twenty four hours, seven days a week. We have um, no. Um, yeah, you pretty much just come, take what you want, leave what you can. Uh, we are located at two nineteen James Street at Bridgeport. Uh, we also have a fridge in New Haven, and we also have a fridge in Hartford. Um, sorry, I missed the other question. Well, I'm just curious when you're how many people are, that you're serving. So you mentioned that you have uh, these roles in other communities. But when we talk about high food prices, Reggie, what are people that that are getting help from Fridgeport? What are they telling you about? Um, you know what they're dealing with lately. We serve about um 125 to 150 people a day, depending on the temperature. It's all done through donation-based system. We're not a nonprofit. We are a uh, mutual aid effort. We're a grassroots effort of a bunch of people working in. Um, coordination to get food around, um, filling gaps where we can. Um, in regards to what they're telling us about food, I mean, we started um, well, this time last year, two years ago, people were living off stimulus checks. So that while there is a difference, there isn't a much. When you had $1,200 to live with, the price changes. Uh, sorry, I'm rambling. Um, there's problems in insecurity. There's problems that's raising an in insecurity. But inflation, it affected much. But um on the ground, people were hungry before. They just went from not eating one, like eating one meal a day, to uh, three fourths of a meal a day. They were hungry, but it was they were always hungry from what I've seen. 
But Bridgeport is also one of the most food insecure cities. So it's uh, around here is kind of different. So Fridgeport as a mutual aid organization, really a community building effort uh, to help people. You mentioned again, Fridgeport has expanded. So how can pe- people partner with you if they're interested, Reggie? <laughs> um, well, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Fridgeport. We do a uh, BridgeportMutualAid.org. That's a website. But I say um, Fridgeport's more uh, a uh, billboard than a bandage. Like, um, I, I'm all the work I'm trying to do is make myself obsolete. So there, I think there should be real work done for food insecurity. My fridges are quirky and all, and they look cool and they open conversation. But I like if you want a fridge, I'd love to help you. I think every place should have a fridge because it helps a lot of people in a very direct way, and it builds community. There's families helping families, but um, I don't think it's a solution. I think there are billboards, and I'll just keep on tossing billboards until we get off the highway and have a conversation about uh, food insecurity. So, um, yeah. Uh, Jason Jakubowski is still with us. Uh, Jason mentioning that you know food insecurity impacts residents all over our state. So, Jason, I wonder if you can uh, chime in on on the role of mutual aid organizations uh, in this uh, this uh, conversation about helping residents in need. Yeah, absolutely, Lucy. I mean, I I think the the important thing to remember is you know this is a, a community problem. This is and, and in many cases it's even above the state of Connecticut. It's a it's a societal problem, and we are all in this. Uh, we are all in this together. Um, I think we try to do work with whatever organizations we can. Anybody who's dedicated to this particular to this particular issue, um, you know, understanding that you know there are certain restrictions. Again, I mean, food safety is one of the things. As a Feeding America food bank, I mean, that's one of the things that we are um, the, the the that we rely heavily on, and that we put a tremendous amount of of, of emphasis on. So, um, what we want people to know is that when you know we have a partner out there in the community. And uh, when we are partnering with somebody and they have that seal of approval from Connecticut Food Share and from Feeding America, uh, people can know that that food is subjected to the most rigorous uh, uh, safety uh, uh, protocols out there. Um, but I would say this, I mean, we anybody, you know, there, there's no competition in this arena. Um we're all part of the same fight, and I think we're always willing to, 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 to share best practices and ideas with, with anybody who's interested. Agreed. Uh, Reggie, um, go ahead. Yeah, I want to say agreed on all parts. Um, yeah, food safety, uh, we're all in the same fight. But uh, I want to loop back something earlier in regards to that bill, HB 5146. Um, it is not a good bill. It um, There's a monopoly kind of when it comes to food security. So CT Food Share does do a great job, but places like me, a lot of places like Hartford, where there's um, a lot of grassroots efforts, unless you start a nonprofit and dedicate your life to this, you can't really help anyone. So um, the bill is not really good. It doesn't have bite. I just want to mention that because I was on the opposite side of the spectrum. I've talked to people who have built the bill in both San, San Diego, France, and uh, New York the last couple of months. We've been talking about it through conversation here and there. Uh, it's, a, it's a bill that's existed everywhere, but Connecticut would kind of be kind of weak. But I just want to slip that in there because it's talked about, and I think that's a real important part to, t- to touch on. The bill's not good. Um, we need more bite. Connecticut's two hours tall, an hour half wide. We have real chance to make change and fight food insecurity. I don't think we should just go with something lazy. Mm-hmm. And Sorry you mentioned that. again, uh, Reggie, uh, before we run out of time, you know, just um, willing, hearing from people willing to help set up community fridges, the best way to reach you. There's a website? Uh, BridgeportMutualAid.org. Um, I tell people the money, like, 
your money's better just sent to, if you see someone homeless spend it there it, that, that's what mutual aid is like again my fridges are quirky they're cool but there's way more direct ways to help people diapers are cheap food's cheap food's kind of expensive buy your neighbor groceries you don't need to come to bridgeport save on gas it's expensive um but uh yeah there's way, many ways to help but i think holistically the best way to help is just help your neighbor but we do have a website if you want to come talk um bridgeportmutually.org fridgeport at gmail uh fridgeport at on facebook and instagram and um this saturday i'll be at 1469 uh reservoir avenue farm in bridgeport um pushing for a 99 year lease well, Reggie, it's been a pleasure to hear about you and the work that you're doing in communities and important to that these are resources that are stigma free, that people should feel comfortable reaching out for help. And as you mentioned, helping neighbors. Uh, we appreciate your time today here on the show. Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me out. Jason Jakubowski was also here, president and CEO of Connecticut Food Share. Jason, thank you for your perspective as well. Absolutely, Lucy. Great to be on with you and, and, and Reggie and the rest of the guests. Today's show was produced by Sujatha Srinivasan. Kitty Tularski was our tech producer today. You know, coming up tomorrow, we're going to be focusing on a population uh, that doesn't often get a lot of attention in our state, and that are that is the foster population and the youth aging out of the system. Coming up tomorrow, a new report identifies obstacles facing young adults transitioning out of the child welfare system in Connecticut. We're going to hear from a local nonprofit led by former foster and adopted youth, and we'll also talk to the State Department of Children and Families. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We hope you join us tomorrow.